Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. I'm happy to be here, and I hope that you are doing well. And I hope that we'll have a dialogue. Certainly, I have some really interesting topics, I think, and also kind of a serious meander that got started by several things that uh, occurred in a conversation with a patient today. I learned some things that led me to dig deeper, and before I knew it, I was pulling other things I had in my folder here uh, and putting it all together into one big lovely James Burke Connections program. So if you catch that reference, you used to watch actual television. Anyway, so the first thing that the patient uh, said in our conversation today was that she had, through her friend network, learned of a therapy for a very unusual uh, condition that uh, she has, which is called coup de sabre, which means cut from the saber and saber blow. And it's a type of alopecia, which occurs in a sort of, well, it looks like a slice across the hairline in the uh, forehead and up onto the hairline. And it creates a bald spot and often with redness and inflammation. Unlike uh, alopecia areata, which is little spots or sometimes complete baldness, but it generally forms in sort of more like giraffe patches, if you will, than any kind of linear thing. These saber stripes are much more like a zebra stripe, but just one on the hair. Very unusual kind of uh, inflammatory disease. If you take a look at the cells, you'll see inflammatory diseases at the edges and scar tissue at the center of these lesions. Uh, She received ultraviolet Phototherapy, UVA1 phototherapy, which is uh, specifically a subtype of ultraviolet A. Now, ultraviolet radiation comes in three flavors the near ultraviolet, visible lights 400 to 800 nanometers, and then ultraviolet is 100 to 400 nanometers. So, very small wavelengths. And, of course, we were thinking about using UVA-C to, well, we use it to sterilize the toothbrush. If you have one of those water sterilizer wands, it's going to be a UVC sterilizer. And that just refers to the, within that 100 to 400 nanometers, you know, how long are they? And in the case of uh, the wavelength from 340 to 400 that's your UVA. So you could think of that as the closest to visible light, just above visible light. They've filtered out the lower wavelengths. It's been used for skin lesions for a while, but new machines are making it more widely available. They're still fairly expensive, so if you get this therapy, you can expect to pay for it. However, uh, it makes me wonder whether or not you could get some of this at least in a tanning booth that was not a very good tanning booth. I don't know. Anyway, this UVA penetrates very deep into the reticular layer of the dermis, which makes it potentially damaging, and you have to watch your dosing. Uh, It acts on both fibroblasts, which are the cells that lay down collagen, create scar tissue. More about that later. Dendritic cells, which are the antigen-presenting cells that are like giant sort of amoebas with little tendrils sticking out that uh, are there to gather and uh, present uh, antigens from bacteria, from uh, cancer, from anything to the immune system and say, hey guys, take a look at this, you need to attack this. And inflammatory cells themselves, particularly in the case of UVA1, the T-cell lymphocytes, as well as mast cells and granulocytes. So mast cells are your allergy cells, and it works for that. Uh, Granulocytes are another type of immune cell. So the result of UVA, it actually kills the cells. If there's oxygen present, which of course there are, it activates programmed cell death. It actually causes in the case of atopic dermatitis, which is eczema, 
it actually causes the skin infiltrating T helper cells to disappear. It takes them out, leaves the other cells, and it's been used, in fact, to treat T cell lymphoma, cutaneous T cell lymphoma, in fact. And it also causes the fibroblast to produce an enzyme called matrix metalloproteinase, which breaks down the extra collagen in the extracellular matrix. So it's very helpful in sclerosing scar-like conditions, that is to say, uh, for example, scleroderma in all of its forms. It can be used for keloids, hypertrophic scars, big bumpy scars that just haven't flattened out yet, and also bad dyshydrotic eczema. For, so for a lot of people who wash their hands frequently and get little tiny blisters all the time, and, you know, it, it, you know what, what can I tell them? I can tell them, well, if you have that condition and you, you have dyshydrotic eczema diagnosed, you can put a lot of cortisone on your hands and you can not use soap or detergent. That's not easy. Uh, and maybe a one or two doses of this UVA therapy, a light dose, might do the trick in terms of knocking down a flare-up. It can also be used in lichen sclerosis, although it, it isn't used on the genital form because that skin is too thin. It can be used in lupus. I've already mentioned T-cell uh, lymphoma and atopic dermatitis. And also it can be used in a condition called urticariopigmentosin, which is raised, itchy, pigmented lesions. So we have here just an interesting therapy that I wasn't all that familiar with. So our next one is chronic inflammation. And this is a new way. This is being developed in mice, but it's tiny little antibodies called nanobodies, which actually are able to dissolve the molecular complexes and tissue that normally activate the immune system. So the, these may slow down unwanted inflammatory reactions. Uh, we're particularly interested in diseases like chronic arthritis and neurodegeneration. Uh, the way that this works is fascinating. There's a line of immune cells called neutrophils. They serve a watchdog role for the most part. And they have within them a very sophisticated alarm system, something like one of those uh, networked alarm systems where your phone and your door and your carbon monoxide meter and all of those things are all connected and go right to your cell phone sensor app. Well, the inflammasome is a kind of genetic cassette deck. Your, your, your home sensor system can only send you a message and then you're for, forced to figure out what to do about it. But the body has this just completely automated. And what happens when the alarms are triggered is that you get a protein forming called the ASC protein. It's triggered by that genetic cassette deck I mentioned. So the neutrophils have the DNA. They receive a signal or they see an alarm. They immediately turn on the DNA that makes this thing called the ASC protein. And just like Legos, we'll be talking about Legos later, in fact, but just like Legos that clump together, uh, the ASC protein forms a large complex. And this complex causes the surrounding immune cells to accumulate, uh, well, the surrounding cells in the area of injury actually acquire and start making large quantities of messenger substances. So the ASC protein triggers this. More a second DNA cascade happens. Now the help me, help me chemicals are being made by all of the injured or endangered cells. And then numerous pores will form in the cell membrane, also triggered by this genetic inflammasome cassette deck, the secondary one that's triggered by the ASC spec. See how it's like matryoshka dolls of activation, turn on some DNA, that activates more DNA, and you get this complex series of commands being carried out by the cell and its, its programming. So when those messenger substances are released, it's happening in response usually 
to an infection. And the neutrophils have produced all of this ASC protein within them. And then they sort of explode and just spatter it all over the tissue. And this is like the great calling all cars emergency call that causes this strong inflammatory response. The GI tract is full of of these neutrophils. And in the case of the gut, this is one of the triggers for food sensitivity because this ASC cassette, when it's uh, released, it persists in that tissue. So the gut tissue stays inflamed and it activates the immune system system long after the tear has been healed or the bacteria has uh, been killed. The damping down of this is poor in the mammalian tissue, and chronic inflammation, as we are beginning to see, is the root of all uh, evil in the body. What researchers did was they worked with alpaca. That's right, the animal uh, from South America And they used alpacas because alpacas have a different way of making antibodies than other mammals. And some of their uh, antibodies are really, really tiny. So they chopped those up. First, they injected the target ASC into the alpacas and waited for a while and pulled some blood and pulled out the antibodies to this and then chopped those up to make smaller fragments those smaller fragments actually broke down the target complex. Essentially, if you can imagine you've got something made out of Legos and you go in there and pull it apart a little bit and basically clog the little holes so that the things can't hook together, you start to get a sense for how this would actually work. It kind of gums up the works. But in doing that, the structure dissolves through just the pressure of Brownian motion and So they thought, well, maybe we can make these small fragments uh, from the blood samples of the animal and then break them down, you know, read them, figure out what the genetic is to make ASC nanobodies, uh, and then put those into bacteria so we can grow up a whole bunch of them. And so what they did was exactly that. They basically created an artificial compound that dissolves these inflammatory, persistent inflammatory stimulators in both human and mice cell culture. So then they used mice that have rheumatoid arthritis and mice that have gout, and basically it fixed the inflammation and the general health of the rodents. The rodents got a little bit younger and friskier because guess what? Inflammation causes generalized aging symptoms as well. So these nanobodies are very tiny compared to normal antibodies. So the nice thing is they can't provide any additional stimulation to the immune system. So they can't backfire and aggravate inflammation somewhere else. And they're also so small that they can get into the brain and then go after amyloid beta protein. The, the, they can essentially go after plaque and help break that up. So that's very new. But I'm loving that the serum of the alpaca may someday help break up amyloid plaque in humans. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to do the first tests in uh, Peru or Ecuador just for general fairness. Uh, Some emails in a moment, but I want to tell you that we'll be talking about a different kind of pore. You mentioned, I mentioned how the, these pores form in progression of the activation of the inflammasome, well, we've got a little bit more about this spontaneous formation and opening and closures of pores in cells. So stay tuned for that. But another question that came from this a different patient I, I thought was very good, and that was COVID booster timing, and when should we do that? And the answer, of course, it can be at six months, and be talking a little later about heterogeneity. And those of you who are regular listeners will have heard me say, I like people to space out a strong vaccination that creates a strong immune response. I don't like them to get two at the same time. It can cause too many side effects for one thing. And there's no data to show that it improves the immune response, could do the opposite. So 
since all of our studies are based on a single vaccination, let's go with what we know until we know something more. Therefore, I recommend spreading out shingles vaccine to COVID booster by a couple of weeks. Uh, In my clinical observation, all of the antibodies that you develop after a vaccination that starts at about the 10 to 14 day mark, all of the side effects, achiness, that's usually a day or two right at the beginning. It certainly clinically never lasts beyond a week. And so these are the circumstances. Spread them out. Give one vaccine a chance to work, wait a couple of weeks, then get the then get the COVID booster. Are you getting on an airplane? You probably want to back burner the shingles vaccine and get the COVID booster uh, er, earlier uh, if you're going to be traveling because the variants are different. And given that these are variants, you need a higher antibody level to attack them. So you want that antibody level peaking. And so that means give it a couple of weeks when you're boosting before you travel. That's just based on the curves seems to be a fairly uh, solid thing to be doing. So this is my advice until, of course, someone tells me something different and has good science to back up their statement. Two phrases there, good science to back up their statement and something different. I even like to look for consistency, but sometimes that takes too long. So I'm willing to go with just really good research. All right, so I promised you pores, and I'll give you pores. We're going to talk about our amazing cellular custom inspectors, uh, the gated ion channels. So countries import a vast array of, of consumer goods across national borders, right? So would you believe living cells are also engaged in a lively import-export business? Their ports of entry? sophisticated transport channels embedded in our cells' protective membranes, regulating what kinds of cargo can pass through, pass through those borderlands formed by the cell's two-layer membrane. It's essential for proper cellular functioning and survival, thought, heartbeats. Well, we'll come to all of that along the next few minutes. The research we'll be talking about appears in the current issue, May, of Nature Communications. So I mentioned the the cell membrane. All living cells are enveloped in a very unique biological structure called the cell membrane. It's called a phospholipid bilayer, and it's a membrane formed from phosphate molecules attached to a fat or lipid molecule. And this is important because, of course, fat is fat-soluble, and these phosphate molecules are polar. In other words, they dissolve in water. Now, we all know oil and water don't mix. And we all know from magnets that we played with as a child that the north pole of a magnet repels the other north pole of another magnet and attracts the south pole. So in a lipid bilayer, the phosphate molecules are the molecules that are attracted to water and attract water. And the lipid end of the molecule is repelled by water. So the cell wall consists of an outer layer of molecules with the water-attracted portion pointing outward and the water-repelled portion pointing inward. And the inside of the cell wall has the water-attracted portion pointing inward at the cell water and the water-repelled portion pointing to the center of the cell wall where it blends with the other molecules coming in from the other side. The total effect of this is to prevent large molecules from passing through because they're charged and they get blocked by the lipid layer in the center. But the inside of the cell needs those charged molecules, like salts and glucose and water. So how are they going to get through? Well, the answer is through highly specialized and highly selective tunnels or pores. They act like VIP entrances waiting for a substance with the right credentials to show up at the gate. So we're going to, as an example of a pore, talk about a the voltage-gated calcium channel. Uh, 
because it's so critical to functioning of so many important cells. For example, right now I'm using my tongue and my jaw, and that's uh, using up that's some muscle, some fine muscle motor movement to form the shapes of speech, right? Also, I'm firing off quite a few neurons to figure out what I'm going to say and then manage to direct the nerves to direct the muscles to say it. And all of this depends upon the passage hundreds of times, thousands of times per second of calcium ions through a lipid bilayer, and they pass through a calcium channel or gate. When the cell is at rest, resting membrane potential it's called, the these gates are closed. And as we'll use nerves, for example, as a nerve is fired from the synapse, a series of gates are open, just like dominoes, roll, rolling one down to the other. If you imagine each domino is a gate, that's exactly how a nerve is firing. And the voltage, as the domino falls, that opens the calcium channel. And now, in the wake of the falling domino, those horizontal dominoes, that's where the calcium is flowing in and changing what's going to go on inside of the cell. The calcium, and we'll follow the journey of calcium into a muscle cell for a little bit, activates the neuron and passes on the information, but also the calcium causes the muscle contract. But there's also other places, interesting places, you'll find uh, these calcium channels in the adrenal gland. And you'll find them in aldosterone-producing tumors. And if you have too much of them anywhere, excessive activation, I'm sure you've heard of excitotoxicity. And all of those people who are totally afraid of NutraSweet are afraid of NutraSweet because it's going to increase glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter that hits the NMDA receptor, which opens up a calcium gate, allowing the flow of calcium into a neuron, which activates the neuron, makes it light up like a Christmas tree. But if you do that too often, you can damage the neuron, hence excitotoxicity. This is what happens when people have seizures. They have too much calcium flux, and they're, well, basically after the seizure is over, they're very depleted, and there's a certain amount of damage as the body tries to pump all of that calcium back outside. It doesn't have a lot, of, a lot to do much else. But I said I was going to talk about how it works in muscle cells. When a smooth muscle cell, and we're going to use smooth muscles because they're simpler, it opens up when it's depolarized by the nerve, by the impulse from the nerve, just goes literally across the synapse to the muscle, uh, and that depolarizes it, starts those calcium-gated type channels to open. You can imagine just a series of ripples across the muscle. As that happens, calcium moves in, and it attaches to something called a protein-couple receptor. Uh, They bind calmodulin, which is a, a protein. Once calmodulin is activated by this extracellular calcium coming in, it goes straight to the myosin light chain kinase, turns that on. Now you take a phosphorus molecule and you ding, touch the myosin, the myosin and the actin, right? Those are the thin and thick muscle fibers. So the muscle filaments, the actin is thin, the myosin is thick, the phosphorylated dinged myosin is going to attach to the actin, cross bridges, they're called, and these fibers are going to pull against each other, just like taking your fingertips opening them and interlacing your fingers all the way down to the base of the finger. That's what's happening with your muscle cells. Hundreds of times a second, those those fibers are sliding past each other, and that's creating a contracted muscle. Now, to get the muscle to uncontract, you actually have to take the calcium off of the myosin and then pump the calcium out of the cell And then once you've done that, the muscle can fire again. So generally, we try not to fire all of the muscle cells at once. If we do that, it's going to be a while before that muscle is able to move again. Hence, heart muscle. Because as the calcium channel opens in the heart muscle, 
it happens in a series of different locations across the heart. That's why we have an electrical system in the heart to coordinate the contracture of the heart. So instead of squeezing down, the heart actually squeezes from the top and wrings itself out like a wash rag. And so that ringing motion, that is the contraction that allows for your heartbeat. And it's the same thing. Calcium gets in there. It attaches to, in this case, the actin filaments. Those uh, those create a different sliding filament mechanism, shortening the sarcomeres, creating muscle contraction, and bump, 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 and we're off to the races. Wow. So pores and cells, pretty amazing. And that's how everything gets in. Like I said, not just calcium, not just ions, glucose, in some cases, hormones. A lot of cellular signaling occurs at the outside of the cell membrane, and it's modulated by something called a G-coupled protein receptor, which is basically a a very simple mechanism. Uh, It attaches to a signal. There's a receptor on the outside, receives that signal on the outside of the cell, triggers the G-coupled receptor across the membrane that's just sitting there. That spins down, activates something else, does something else. That something else will often go to the nucleus and start something rolling. And that's how all, many, I should say, not all of our hormones work. Estrogen's different. Estrogen just oozes right through the cell wall, manages to get, doesn't need a special pore, goes straight to the nucleus and does all kinds of interesting things, which uh, many of which we're probably still in the process of learning. But in new research, Arizona State professors, along with other researchers at the University of London, are working on constructing artificial membrane channels, and they're using short segments of DNA. Now, these this is where we get into the Legos, which I promised you. The, the DNA constructions behave much like natural cell channels or pores, doing selective transport of ions, proteins, or other cargos, right? But this gated calcium channel that we just finished talking about, it's limited to very, very small molecules. But these engineered nanopores can actually be locked, can be created, and then locked and open to an external key. They actually have a, a little lid that flips open. They're using DNA for a really interesting reason. DNA is a great, stable structural material, right? <laughs> we, can, we can get DNA out of a woolly mammoth that's been frozen up on the Arctic tundra for God knows how long. We can pull DNA from Egyptian mummies. Uh, the double strands of DNA that form the, the genetic blueprint for all living organisms are held together by base pairs, right? You have uh, A, C, T, and G, adenine, the, uh, thymine, cytidine, and guanine, and then they throw a scene on the end of them. And these nucleotides always pair with the opposite. So A always goes with T. C always goes with G. And so you get a complementary strand, right? This is hopefully in your basic science repertoire. But you can make nanostructures, and you can potentially make a limited uh, array of 2 and 3D structures. And once you uh, have designed these structures, then you can actually mix them together, and they'll self-assemble in fluid into the desired form. So think about Legos with two sets of connectors rather than what we've got. Think about a circle and a square and imagine how much more specific uh, the shapes could be. The reason I'm really excited about this was the previous people have been thinking like the 20th century, but this new technique actually 3D prints the channel structure step-by-step. So they assemble the DNA segments horizontally with respect to the membrane. That allows them to get much bigger and be more stable. So you can make a pore that you can get an entire drug through. And these keys that we're talking about, they're basically a lid that snaps down on the pore on the outside, and it can be opened 
by another molecule that you release into the cell. So this is going to allow us, just as a scientific research tool, it's going to allow us to manipulate things in really fascinating ways. And it has the potential, I think, to help us move drugs if we ever can if we can get this to the level of designing these things in biological systems or even inserting them in biological systems with a needle we might be able to have depots that could attract drugs fluorescent dyes you know we can inject so far but what if we could just have something that would suck the fluorescent dyes out of the bloodstream what if we could have something that would suck the chemo out of the bloodstream and take it directly to the area in the un- inoperable cancer that we were trying to treat. Oh, sounds like a pretty interesting idea to me. And just checking, no emails there, but I do have one from last week, and it actually dovetails nicely with talk that we had about the UVA-1 used for coup de sable and also for other types of inflammatory skin conditions. And this is a question about lichen sclerosis. Uh, Dear Dr. Mutika, I have, uh, this is anonymous, I have uh, lichen sclerosis diagnosis. I've, uh, this is in my vulva. It's extremely itchy and uncomfortable. I have uh, been using the prescribed medication and she lists a uh, strong steroid that uh, presumably her dermatologist gave her and I have not uh, and I'm concerned about continuing to use this I read about the side effects and it says that thinning of the tissue is a long-term side effect and I'm wondering if there's if you have any other suggestions so uh, yes actually anonymous I, I as a matter of fact I do and this was one another one I seem to be uh, having a theme on this night's program of uh, things my patients taught me. And this this one goes out to uh, a patient named uh, whose initials are J, and uh, she wa- ha- suffers from this exact condition and shared with me a thing that she had picked up off the Internet that sounded very weird to me, when I first heard it, but I've subsequently suggested it to several patients, and it is, well, it's worked, again, anecdotally, and there may or may not be research on it. The drug is available over-the-counter, and it's, oddly enough, something that we use for bacterial infections. Uh, It's mupirocin. The trade name is Bactroban, M-U-P-I-R-O-C-I-N, I think, and Bactroban, B-A-C-T-R-O-B-A-N, I'm sure. Now, this is used for uh, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus skin infections, and I've often used it in the nose of patients who have exposure, either from their dog or from a family member with this, to prevent them from being a carrier. Also, long-term, people can reinfect themselves because other parts of their body become colonized. So in other words, the nose in particular. And so all those pesky little body folds below the waist can also become a source where the MRSA can hide out and reinfect the skin. And of course, in a hospital setting, it's terrible uh, situation because if that gets into a surgical wound, we're giving a person who may already be quite vulnerable very heavy antibiotics to keep it from getting into their bloodstream. Once it's there, their chance of survival, less than 50%, even with the heavy drugs. So it's very serious, this infection. It's cool that after about 15, almost 20 years, this still works against the Staph aureus, different mechanism of action. And so why is it working on lichen sclerosis? Why is it working on what we think of as an auto-inflammation syndrome? And you know, I don't know the answer, but it argues for me that there's either a direct anti-inflammatory effect of this agent that simply hasn't been uh, elicited and uh, probably not not known. We have several antibiotics that seem to have 
anti-inflammatory effects. And I've always wondered, could that be some sort of microbiome manipulation? And I've wondered that about like the fact that if you give erythromycin to someone who's having a rheumatoid arthritis flare, they get better. I've always thought that was probably microbiome manipulation. Well, could we be manipulating the vaginal microbiome in some way in this case? Certainly, that's possible. And because there are two equally plausible hypotheses, your mind starts to go to, well, how would I test that? How, how could I tease these factors apart? And then part, my practical doctor sidesteps in and goes, you don't really care, do you, Don? It works. It's harmless. Won't hurt. Might help. Give it a try. So that's my advice to you. Mupirosin applied liberally to the area several times a day. And, you know, give it a month and see what you get. In answering that patient's question about the Shingrix and the COVID booster, I remembered a paper that I'd pulled a couple of weeks ago. This was very much in the news, and it was a study looking at antibodies to COVID and the the possibility that many more people than we realize have already had COVID. And, of course, many of my patients and I myself have wondered, could I have had a subclinical case. I had a bad cold in December. Uh, I never get colds. Was that COVID? Could the cheapo, uh, very rudimentary antibody test I had in, I don't know, April of 2020 have been wrong? Did I have antibodies then? And would I still have any now? So I thought, well, that's this. I don't, I'm curious. And they mentioned in the, in this, paper that we're talking about this uh and i'll i'll tell you let's see this is the march 15th of uh, jama march 15th 2020 volume 327 and it's in the letters so briefly i read this it was a study that was done drawing blood from people between september and november of 2021 and they had three groups a group that had a confirmed positive test, they knew they'd had COVID, a group that were never tested but thought they had had it, and a group who didn't think they'd had it. And they used a test called the anti-nucleocapsid N protein to look for. And if you had antibodies to this, then you had had COVID because this wasn't in the vaccine. And they tested about 1,500 individuals And essentially what they found was that of those who had a positive COVID test, 99% of them tested positive for these anti-RBD receptor binding domain proteins. Okay, good. And uh, this was done at up to 20 months since the reported COVID-19 diagnosis. That's two zero months on some uh, of these patients, and that would have been in the the later group, the November group, uh, the math on that isn't working out for me, but but, uh, that's what it says. The average was eight months after the diagnosis, which is still good, uh, 8.7 months. So it tells us that this was an enduring test nine months out. And they said there was no association between time after infection and antibody titer, which is interesting and suggests that these are long-standing antibodies, which is good to know if you're going to answer that question yourself. By the way, those who uh, didn't think they'd had COVID and hadn't had a COVID test, uh, 11% of them were positive for these uh, antibodies. So we, I think, can assume a 10% in a name-your-population who have actually got uh, antibodies. Now, there may have been some confirmation bias because the people who tested uh, may have been people who were curious, even though they didn't think they'd had it, like myself. But I went and did a John Oliver on this uh, lab test because I because they told they said what lab they got it from. They got it from LabCorp. So I'm like, well, there's a LabCorp locally. I'm just going to find out how much that costs and test myself. So if you're curious, you can for about sixty bucks, you can find out. The uh, nucleocapsid spike test for COVID is available. And I thought I had in my notes here the test code written down. Yes, here it is. Uh, LabCorp 
if you the best thing to do probably is get the nucleocapsid and the spike protein, then you can figure out whether or not your vaccine is still holding and you have high levels of spike protein. The that test will run you about sixty bucks with LabCorp cash pay. Don't try to get your insurance to pay this. I'm sorry. Just pay the people their money and get the test. One six zero. 236 is the code number for LabCorp. You can ask your doctor to order that for you. Yes, you do need a physician's order in the state of California for this test and probably not in Florida. But uh, I don't think you want to drive to Florida to get the blood drawn. So probably have to actually get your doctor to order it. And that sent me down uh, a related rabbit hole. You know how these lateral things go when you're on the Internet Uh, To mix or not to mix, this paper is called A Rapid Systematic Review of Heterologous Prime Boost COVID-19 Vaccine. Okay, so what what exactly does that mean? It means getting your first shot from one vaccine and your second shot from another vaccine, or alternatively getting two shots of one vaccine and then getting your boost from a second vaccine. And in this particular study that was done outside of the United States, published, I believe, in The Lancet. Let's see if that's right. No, it was published in something called The Expert Review of Vaccines. So I think that was a special edition of something. But they mainly had people who got either the Pfizer vaccine or the AstraZeneca for their first dose. And what happened in other parts of the world, my friends, is that there was a vaccine shortage. And so you could, uh, if you were buying vaccine for, say, South Africa, you could get initially a bunch of AstraZeneca from England, but then they were low and Pfizer came up and said, well, we'll sell you some. And so you bought the Pfizer. So now you're trying to give people their second shot and maybe you were late, couldn't give it at four weeks, so they got it at eight weeks. Or maybe you couldn't even have the Astra- the same one at eight weeks, so you gave them the Pfizer because that's what you had, and you figured, well, something's better than nothing. Turns out that uh, heterologous vaccines, at least in certain uh, conditions, worked better. But the timing was different. The timing was interesting. So if you looked at giving two shots of Pfizer versus giving one AstraZeneca and then a Pfizer, they were pretty much the same in terms of their spike protein and neutralizing antibody titers. But if you gave one AstraZeneca and one Pfizer, but only if you gave the AstraZeneca first, you got significantly higher T-cell immunity, which is your long-term immunity and the thing you want and the thing we have such a hard time measuring. And that had significantly better results But if you gave the Pfizer first and then followed it up with the AstraZeneca, you got weaker immunogenicity than if you had given two of the Pfizer shots. But all of them were good enough to reach the threshold of neutralizing antibodies. So they were all protective. But they were essentially pushing the hypothesis in this paper that it's probably good to mix vaccine types and they went and they discussed all of the studies that were out there. And one of the important fragments, things that they found, was that the first shot gave you really good protection before you got really high antibodies. And they speculate that what that first shot did was supercharge the innate immune system to be upregulated. And it's like, troubles ahead, guys. Neep, neep, neep. The enemy is coming. And so the innate immune system was faster on the uptake when the person uh, was exposed. And therefore, you got better than expected protection before you could measure an appropriate level of antibody. I hope that's making sense. Once you got that level of antibody after the second shot, you had very good protection for quite a long time. And as we all know, people can get COVID after they've had their primary series, but the severity is so much less, even if their antibody levels have fallen. And that's where those T cells and that sensitized innate immune system probably come in, uh, in place. And so the question is, well, what, what's good for giving you T cells? 
and is there a a better strategy for T cells? And it seems that the viral vector vaccines, and that would be your AstraZeneca and your Janssen, because they are viral vectors, have a uh, a different effect. The different part of the immune system gets alerted, and perhaps combining the two would give us our best effect. And there was one study looking uh, at that combination, and it showed that heterologous vaccination, particularly if you gave that after people had had COVID, was just an amazing antibody response in people who were convalescent. And so what we're thinking here, what one conclusion that you can draw is that you want a 360 view of the virus. And so, yes, when you get infected, you don't get a good prolonged immunity in terms of, of antibody levels, but you get a different angle, literally, on the virus. So perhaps that allows the innate immune system to be ready. Perhaps that primes things in other ways. But then when you give the vaccination, that person is really more bomb-proof uh, if they get fully vaccinated after they've had COVID, and there's you know, fairly good consensus on this, that you you want to vaccinate people who've had COVID, and those people are then the people you want to send in to deal with the new variants because they've got more angles, more ideas, literally more ge- immunogenic strategies just by the virtue of having had that experience. Done with COVID vaccines and COVID topics for the moment. But I hope that you enjoyed that little bit of a review on what's turning out to be best practices. Don't hold your breath to hear that from the CDC, not to criticize the CDC. I think they're cautious and conservative. There's nothing wrong with that. But I am also pretty sure that we won't be hearing anything like that from them anytime soon. So we have just a few moments, uh, maybe five minutes before the end of the program. And so a couple of quickies for you. Good genes and exercise. This came out, uh, reported in uh, the, the Daily Telegraph. I don't have the reference for the paper, but those of us that work out regularly, but find ourselves not really muscular or have a hard time getting stronger, we seem to reach a threshold, or uh, what they looked at was the genotypes and how they relate how they relate to your ability to train and how many genes. They, it was 3,000 people, and they exercised for at least two weeks, and some people and measured how well pe- how much people improved on the parameters. And what they found was that that about 72% of the difference in training, and there was quite a wide difference, was accounted for uh, for just by just 13 genes. And these genes were uh, really significant when you were talking about high-powered sports people. And also you have to think in the opposite end. So the, the very extreme athletes and also the very vulnerable people, those would be the ones where knowing where they were on their alleles for these 13 genes could be extremely important. And there's an amazing book, which I highly recommend, on this topic called The Sports Gene. Uh, I'm sure there's more information now, but if you are an athlete or you're interested in genetics, you probably do want to uh, take a look at that book. It's fascinating to see which genes correlate with success in which sports. Surprise alert, one of the sports genes that's very important relates to visual acuity, and another one that's very important relates to uh, strength and power. So third is flexibility. So you can think about which sports what might be important in, but it's a fascinating topic and a really well-written good read. So Sorry, I don't have the author, but hey, we all have the internet, so you'll do just fine. So it's summer. Keep the windows open. I've been seeing a lot of people 
catching light cases of COVID and having to isolate. Uh, they aren't very sick. Some of them have uh, a flu, but no. But the hospitalizations just haven't bumped. We're still even now in a reasonably good good situation, and it's important to embrace that appropriately. And that means uh, if you're going to hug somebody, hold your breath and do it outdoors and wear a mask. The social distancing works great, and good ventilation. This is a study that came out of Italy. If you keep the windows open in the classrooms, it reduces COVID transmission by 82.5%. Bring in the fresh air. Dilute the concentration of virus particles. And if you can't socially distance, wear a mask. Those indoors are our best practices moving forward. And I am definitely seeing people sort of dropping the ball a little bit. And yeah, I get it. But it's summer. You know, you can do your events outside. You can keep the windows open. Uh, it's not hard. Uh, ironically, those plexiglass barriers that were supposed to shield people, you go into the market and the person's in the cubicle on the other side of the plexiglass barriers. Actually, while these barriers might block a spray of droplets, uh, well, so does a mask, they impair the air circulation. And because of that, you get local pockets of increased virus, especially, and I feel bad for the, I'm, for the people who are inside those little plexiglass cubicles, effectively, because they're probably at an, in, uh, um, an increased risk of infection from their coworkers. So one of our problems is we've been making our buildings energy efficient, uh, favoring recirculation over ventilation. And we've been doing that for a number of reasons. Largely, we thought we were going to improve uh, air quality, and we were trying to make buildings not cool off as quickly. It worked, but we also have set up a situation where we now have issues around ventilation. Obviously, installing HEPA filters in a uh, HVAC system is not all that difficult, and I hope has mainly been done as part of the post-COVID, post-lockdown uh, retrofit. But nevertheless, that'd be a good question to inquire in the building supervisor if you do work in a building. And, oh, if you are behind one of those plexiglass barriers with other people, uh, I guess you should all be COVID testing every morning to make sure that one of you doesn't just pop in there and infect everybody else. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.